0: Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we fight bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at all the big stories that Full Fact have been looking into this week, such as Nurses' Pay, a zombie Facebook claim that's come back to haunt us, and our main story is... Going to concentrate around the Spanish flu epidemic and what we can learn from that in comparison to what we're going through now. And of course, we will finish the episode with our quick fire ask for fact round. Now, I'm joined by deputy editor for fact, Claire. Claire Milnes back. Claire, how are you?
1: I'm very well, Alex. How are you? I'm very well.
0: Let's kick off with one of the stories that you've been looking at this week. It's come from uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock who claimed at a briefing that nurses' pay has gone up recently. In fact, he said, we put nurses' pay up last month, and in fact, last year we had the biggest rise in pay, especially for nurses, when they are starting their career, and the lowest paid nurses, who got a pay rise, very significant, of over 15%. So there has been a significant pay rise for nurses. That's what the health secretary has said. What have you found out?
1: Yes, so um, there were, as you said, lots of different parts to this claim, starting with the fact that nurses' pay went up last, last month. That's correct. Nurses' pay did increase last month. That's part of a, a deal that for nurses' pay um, that, was, that was agreed back in 2018, a three-year deal which sees her pay go up um, every April. So that's what happened last month. So pay did go up last month. That bit was correct. In terms of the lowest paid nurses who got a a pay rise of, of over 15%, as Mr Hancock said, we don't know exactly what he's referring to here and when we asked the the department of of health and social care to to clarify exactly what it was they they weren't able to confirm for us specifically where the figure came from so we took a look at the numbers to see what we could work out for for ourselves there so when we were digging into the numbers we just looked at this band five group as matt hancock had mentioned that the the lowest paid nurses or those just starting out were the ones he was referring to when he mentioned the 15 percent now nurses when they they started Their careers, they tend to start on the the band five of the pay scale that is there for for lots of of NHS staff. And we found that looking at, you know, depending on how long a nurse has been in their career for and counting in the the increase that I mentioned that happened in April, their pay could have have gone up um, in the last year by anything between 3% and 12%. So that's not quite the 15% he was mentioning there. Um, And and that obviously doesn't factor in the fact that prices change over time, that the value of our money changes. It doesn't necessarily buy us the same amount um, every year. Claire, in,
0: in general terms, have nurses' wages gone up since the Conservatives have been in power?
1: While we have seen in the last few years that nurses' pay has gone up a bit, by various measures, as I've said, there are lots of different ways you you could look at nurses' pay and try to measure it, by various measures it has overall fallen since 2010. It's not as high as it was back then, despite the fact that in recent years it, it has risen uh, slightly. It it hasn't overtaken that, that initial fall since 2010.
0: Let's move on to the battleground of Facebook. There is a viral post that claims that no police officers have died from the virus. What have you found? And is that true?
1: I mean, what we found is that that's just that's just not true. It's completely incorrect. There have been a number of reported deaths of police officers from COVID-19 across the world. There were 17 um, police officers that we found had been reported to have died in Peru, another 50 in the USA. And and even here in the UK, there have been reports of at least one um, police officer dying, uh, an officer from the British Transport Police that died in April um, after becoming ill with COVID-19. So it's just not true, this claim at all.
0: And finally, uh, we see another zombie claim. Now, to regular listeners, uh, this is a story that Full Fact have dealt with before, and they thought they've killed it off, but it somehow resurrects itself and does the rounds again. This concerns Shamima Begum, who was an ISIS bride. She has been asking to return to the UK, and you dealt with this story in 2019. This is, again, a story that uh, Shamima Begum somehow has returned to the UK, Okay. Uh, what have you found out?
1: Yeah, so as you say, this is a post that has, has come up again and again for us. We first checked it back in, in September last year. It came up again earlier this year, uh, back in February. And it's it's as untrue now as it as it was then. We've seen <laughs> no evidence that would suggest that Shemima Begum has returned to the UK. We know for a fact that she was in Syria in February 2020, when we last wrote about this, um, as she was interviewed by a journalist there. So, yeah, as I say, this, this post... is untrue that she has come back to the UK
0: what's the bet that you might see this post rear its head again I don't know maybe next year
1: well yeah I mean we always we tend to say that three is a pattern so I, I would imagine that we will see this one resurfacing again
0: Claire, thank you for that uh, that 's Claire Mill, Deputy Editor at full fact now we 're going to move on to our main story of this episode and we 're going to focus on the Spanish flu uh, because a lot of comparisons are being drawn between the Spanish flu pandemic, what we can learn from that and how we can apply it to our current crisis with coronavirus and to do that i'm joined by tom phillips full fact editor and laura spinney the author of pale rider the spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world welcome to you both thank you delighted to be here laura let me start with you Tell us about the Spanish flu. For those of us who've just heard the word Spanish flu, but actually haven't had a chance to study it, don't really know much detail about it. All we know is it's called Spanish flu. It managed to kill a lot of people and it came in waves. <laughs> Can you give us a, a, a sort of a brief description of what actually happened?
2: Yes. So this is in a, a pandemic of influenza that emerged in the world probably in the early months of 1918 swept over it in three waves of which the worst by far was the second wave in the northern hemisphere autumn of that year and because the waves were staggered in time with respect uh, in the in the south with respect to the north and struck different countries at different times Uh, It wasn't completely over, really, until the middle of 1921. It was still raging in Pacific Islands quite late uh, in in that year. It's thought to have infected one in three people on Earth, or 500 million people, um, and to have killed between 50 and 100 million of them. So that equates, at the time, to about 2.5 to 5% of the global population. As you can see, there's a lot of... uh, Uh, uncertainty in those figures you can see in that huge range of of deaths. One of the main problems in determining these numbers is that there was no uh, reliable diagnostic test at the time and the reason for that was because virus was a relatively new concept and almost everybody in the world thought they were dealing with a bacterial disease. So there's very little about that pandemic that we can be sure about. In fact, one of the few things we can be sure about is that it wasn't Spanish. It didn't start in Spain.
0: (laughs) Why did it end up being called Spanish flu? Why did that term I'm starting to feel sorry for the Spanish.
2: Yes, so you should. It's one of the greatest historical injustices ever perpetrated. (laughs) Um, The only nation that could legitimately claim that Spain gave them that flu was Portugal because <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, it came in that, from that direction. But the real reason is that when it emerged in the early months or when it was first noticed in the early months of 1918, the world was still at war. This was the First World War. And the nations that were implicated in that war chose not to let that information out. They censored their press and they didn't want anything getting into the press that would supposedly lower the morale of the population. So we know that there were cases in, for example, America, Britain and France before there were cases in Spain. But those countries uh, suppressed that information um, from the world and from their own populations. Whereas Spain, which was neutral in the war, did not censor its press. And so it, when it had the first cases there in the spring of 1918, the journalists reported on them. And those cases included the king of Spain, Alfonso XIII, went on to recover. But obviously his case lent it a lot of visibility. And so it seemed both to Spanish people and to people in the rest of the world who were reading their newspapers that this disease was from Madrid.
0: Now, Tom... There have been a lot of stories uh, doing the rounds and Internet and, of course, Facebook, which is your battleground at full fact. But there has been one recently that's been put up as a warning because we are at the stage of lifting lockdowns worldwide. And there's been a post that claims that the 1918 influenza had a deadly second wave after quarantine restrictions were lifted. Uh, A lot of people have been making comparisons between Certain areas that chose to keep lockdown for a little bit longer and they fared a lot better compared to other cities, which lifted the lockdown too quickly. You've been looking into this. What have you found?
3: Yeah, so this is something we've seen. We've seen several posts uh, on Facebook that have been quite widely shared that basically make the same kind of point which is that if you lift lockdowns too early then you will get this deadly second wave there's a particular case which is quite famous which is the parade in philadelphia and 200,000 people it's estimated went along to this parade despite the fact that philadelphia already had cases and the in the days following that the hospitals were overwhelmed the crucial misunderstanding here is that the quarantine was lifted effectively the first wave didn't really see these kind of large-scale public health interventions, like quarantine measures, like closing bars and restaurants and churches and things like that. A lot of those public health interventions that we're now seeing replicated today didn't really come in until the second wave. So the description of how that second wave was more deadly and the effect that it had on various cities in the US is broadly accurate. But the idea that it was because of lifting restrictions is kind of a bit off because Actually, the restrictions hadn't really been put in place at all before that.
0: Laura, were there any instructions to people worldwide of social distancing? Did medics start to get a handle on how to reduce the cases?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, whether you're talking about a bacterium or a virus, and of course flu is caused by a virus, germ theory had only emerged in the middle of the 19th century, but we were doing social distancing for a very long time before that. People have understood that in order to stop contagion spreading, you have to separate sick and healthy people long before they understood what was the agent of disease. Quarantine as I'm sure you know was invented by the Venetians in the 15th century. So
0: means 40 days doesn't it? It
2: does mean 40 days because ships that were coming through Venice for the purposes of trade were asked to stay offshore for 40 days before the crew uh, and their cargo came on shore in order to protect the city from any infection they might be carrying. But there's no doubt that public health measures do have an impact. So you could also give the example of Australia, which put in place a very effective maritime quarantine in the latter part of 1918. It had the luxury of being able to watch the pandemic, approach it through across space and time from the Northern hemisphere. So it put in place that quarantine, it kept out the second wave. Uh, Unfortunately, it lifted it too soon and let in the third wave in the early months of 1919, and 12,000 Australians died in that. So you could say that looked like a wave in Australia. In fact, it was just that they lifted their quarantine too soon. They weren't to know, of course, and they had all the usual pressures that we're seeing now from companies wanting to reopen, people wanting trade to start up again. So they had to strike that balance. But the point is, that's another example of a public health measure having an impact, both good and bad, because the death toll would have been much higher had they let in the second wave.
0: When you wrote your book, how on earth do you do historical fact checking? Because you were talking about events that happened over 100 years ago. Um, you're having to go through records that perhaps have not been verified. How how do you verify historical facts?
2: I mean, it's a question of gathering as much evidence as you can, triangulating, gathering it from different sources, different kinds of measuring techniques, and so on. Um, but it is that much harder when you're not in it. You know, in 1918, not only did they not have a reliable diagnostic test. But um, many people in the world weren't even inscribed in any kind of health system, not registered. Some parts of the world, they weren't, their lives weren't even registered. So it, it, the data is so slippery. We're all doing our best and things get better all the time, but it's a moving <laughs> target. If you just think about the death toll from the Spanish flu, In the uh, 1920s, when the first estimates were published of the global death toll, they were in the region of 20 million, which meant that, according to the consciousness of the time, it was a disaster roughly in the same league as the First World War, which was thought to have killed around 17, 18 million people. But as more research was done, we got to this figure, which is the kind of most cited figure today of between 50 and 100 million.
3: I was going to say, in the course of doing our fact checks, I think I found an error in a book from 1927.
2: (laughs) That's not that surprising. Yeah,
3: we talk about like, the fact that fact-checking takes time, but I think 93 <laughs> years might be a record even for us. <laughs> <laughs> but it does kind of show exactly what Laura's saying. It's like this, There's, there's a, a graph that you may well have seen, and it's on the website of the CDC in America, but they don't say what it actually shows. Is it of global deaths? Is it of American deaths? Uh, what is it? So as part of this fact-checking, I was trying to trace this back, so I managed to trace it back to a paper from 2006, which said that it was actually just for the United Kingdom. And that was taken from a book that was written in 1927, got that book, looked through it for this graph, because they didn't, hadn't given a page reference of where it is, finally found what I think is this graph, looked for the source of that, and ended up tracing it back to the Registrar General's report for England and Wales that was published in 1920. But there seems to be a transcription error that happened in the 1927 book that added a little second bump in a 18- of 1919 that isn't there in the original data. That took a long time to actually get to the bottom of just that one graph that's been everywhere. What does it actually show? And finding out at every stage, actually, there's been slight errors introduced.
2: Right. And you're talking about countries that were relatively good at counting sickness and death. I mean, we don't have any reliable figures for the whole of China in 1918, because there was no centralised collection of healthcare data at that time. It was the warlord period. We have almost no data for Russia, because Russia was in the grip of a civil war at the time, and people had other things on their mind. There are so many problems, and what fascinates me about COVID-19 is that a lot of them are still there today. There's the whole thing about accusing China of having hidden the pandemic, to begin with. And I don't know whether that's true or not. Maybe there was some obfuscation and perhaps that'll become clearer once the pandemic is passed and we have more information. But it's also become very clear that it's incredibly difficult to spot a pandemic at the beginning, to know what you're dealing with, especially when you're dealing with a respiratory disease in winter against the background of other respiratory diseases. People may not even go to the doctor with the disease thinking they have a cold Mm -hmm. or flu. And we were in the West so busy pointing fingers at China. And then we have started uh, having to ask questions. How do we code our COVID deaths? Are these deaths from COVID? Are they deaths from a complication, i.e. pneumonia? We've had to revise our figures too. In fact, both France and the UK changed their definitions of a COVID death mid-pandemic because they wanted to bring in the care home deaths, which were being excluded for reasons of classification. So these are very difficult questions, and we shouldn't think they're straightforward.
0: Do you think there are things that we can learn from the Spanish flu pandemic and apply them to this coronavirus pandemic?
2: The numbers are not comparable, I don't think. You know, if we we go with those numbers that 50 to 100 million people died in the 1918 pandemic, think about the two later flu pandemics of the 20th century, the so-called Asian flu of 1957 and the so-called Hong Kong flu of 1968. Neither of those killed more than we estimate, 4 million people, which is already a vast number of people, and hopefully many more than will die in this pandemic. But you can see that those pandemics are much better comparators for this one than the Spanish flu, which was really, if we can trust the numbers, in a league of its own. So there are many ways in which they're not comparable, but I think there are parallels that we can draw. And I think it's really interesting that in this period when we don't have a vaccine, and let's face it, we may not have a vaccine before the pandemic is over. We're really relying on social distancing measures to slow the spread of the disease. And those are measures that have been around forever. They're the same measures that they were using in 1918, isolation, quarantine, uh, masks and so on. They were having the same debates about school closures, about whether it's useful to wear masks and so on. Some of the concrete lessons we took away from 1918, for example, that we needed a global health agency to coordinate a global response to a global catastrophe. We have that now, the WHO, but we have been sort of unlearning that lesson, I think, in recent decades as the world has become more polarised, more isolationist. We've moved away from that. So perhaps this is an opportunity to relearn that lesson. We shouldn't have to, but there you go. And we also have to learn the bigger lesson, which is about responding globally, that no, no country is an island. Except
0: those that are. Except those the ones that are physically in Ireland. Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, Tom and I definitely enjoyed that, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Now, it is time for our Ask Full Fact section. This is the part of the show where you can send in your question and we'll do our best to answer it. Please send us a voice recording of your question. Uh, Just email it to podcast at fullfact.org. Now, uh, I'm joined by Tom and Claire for this part. Now, Tom, this is for you. Uh, It was sent to us by ATSA from South London. Hi, Full Fact. And one thing I've uh, observed is that the US has quite a lower mortality rate than uh, the UK and a number of other European countries. So I'm just wondering whether you could shed some light on why the US's death rate is lower uh, and and why these sort of differences arise. So yes, the answer to
3: this is basically that it is too early to say. All of the things that Laura was just talking about, about the uncertainty around figures, apply here as well. We're talking here about the case fatality rate, which is how many people who are confirmed via a test to have it have died. And of course, America has been testing more widely. And so that means that they're going to have more cases identified in the UK... We're still mostly testing people who are seriously ill with it, have severe symptoms, things like that. So there's a bias towards we're probably missing more cases. So you can't at this stage just look at the number of people who've tested positive and how many of them have died, because the the number of people tested varies so much to mean that you can't really use that. There may well be underlying reasons why there are differences in this eventually. This is uh, something that we'll learn more about as time goes on, but right now, It's just too difficult to do that kind of comparison around death rates. The pandemic isn't over. And so it's just right now too early to say whether or not that difference is real.
0: Okay, moving on to our next question. Claire, this is a report of the Daily Express uh, using an old photo on their front page cover involving uh, a a depiction of people breaking social distancing rules uh, by the seaside. What did we find out?
1: The suggestion was that the image that had been used on the, the front cover was, was an old image. It couldn't have possibly been from, from lockdown, but that's actually incorrect. The image was from lockdown. The, the photo editor behind the story shared the photo's metadata, so information about when exactly it was taken, what kind of camera that was used to prove that it was taken in April 2020 when lockdown um, rules were, were in force. Um, and there's other evidence that, that backs that up. Um, there's a picture taken from a, a webcam, a, a nearby business, near to where the photo was taken, uh, and that shows the same vehicles in the photo um, that was on, used on the front page of the Express as well, so that backs that up.
0: You have also written a piece on Full Fact about how sometimes photos can be a little bit manipulated using various lenses where actually people are standing quite far apart but if you take it at the right angle with the right lens you can make it seem that people are standing very very close together.
1: Yes definitely and that's definitely something that has we have seen happen in in some of the pictures that have been used to illustrate people breaking lockdown rules when in actual fact if you look at the photograph um, and the scene in the photograph from a, a slightly different angle you'd actually see they are much further apart. That doesn't necessarily seem to have been the case with with this photo Um, often you can you can create that effect using a a long telephoto lens Um, however this particular photo that was used on the front page of the express was taken using uh, an iphone 11 pro's zoom lens again referring to to the information that we got from the metadata there so it could have created a slight effect that would show people a bit closer together than they were but far less than than could be achieved with uh, a professional quality telephoto lens okay excellent
0: stuff tom and claire thank you both very much and thank you for listening to the full fact podcast you can find previous episodes and any future episodes on acast itunes spotify and anywhere else you can think of Uh, be sure to subscribe and the latest episode will be ready on your device every friday morning oh and do leave us a review because it really does help